So I think at the moment that we're drinking uh, from a fire hose, and that's not really a sustainable way for humans uh, to consume what technology has to offer. So it's almost like we've created this digital fast food diet for our brain. And we've ended up with, and you may have heard this term, uh, infobesity. So just like convenience food, it makes it more effortable to be healthy. It's actually harder for us to consume that data out there in a healthy and sustainable way. This is the ERP Organizational Change Journal podcast, brought to you by Nestle & Associates, a Newport Beach, California-based ERP organizational change management firm serving the private equity industry. The ERP OCJ seeks to share expertise, insight, experience, and research, and to create effective conversation to help guide ERP organizational change to real, measurable, and verified success. And now, here's your ERP expert and host, the founder of Nestle & Associates, Dr. Jack Nestle. Hey, Jack here. Today we are going to discuss a fun, thought-provoking, and highly relevant topic in regards to ERP, business systems, and technology in general. In this episode, we're going to discuss how rapid advances in technology are impacting the way in which we work, our personal lives, and society in general. All of us here at the ERP OCJ hope you find this podcast useful as we share lessons learned, discover best practices, and explore the human element components of ERP organizational change. In this episode, we will discuss the title of our guest's book, Humology, How to Put Humans Back at the Heart of Technology, with Declan Foster, in which Joanne Griffin is co-author. Declan is an internationally experienced and qualified change management practitioner and project manager with a big four management consulting background and has over 20 years experience working in projects. His areas of expertise include change management, project management, artificial intelligence, learning management systems, ERP, and digital transformation. Joining us today from Dublin, Ireland, Declan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jack. It's great to be on your show. It's good to be here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this conversation, Declan. You have some great work and great insight, and uh, I'm excited to share some of your book. But Declan, before we get started, please tell us more. Can you further introduce yourself to our listeners, please? Yes, certainly, Jack. So I've been working in change management and and project delivery for about uh, 25 years now, um, and I've provided consulting services to clients uh, globally. I've also recently been ranked in the top 10 uh, top leaders in project management uh, by an organization called uh, Thinkers360. Um, my career really began in consulting in HR tech in London um, a long time ago before moving to Australia, where I spent several years working um, as a management consulting for, for PwC Consulting and then IBM. About uh, 2005, I became an independent consulting a consultant providing uh, change management and uh, project uh, delivery expertise. Um, and throughout my career, I've always been uh, keen to learn about different industries. And I've worked in different uh, diverse organizations and industries, including banks and not-for-profits, uh, public transport and uh, airlines. Um, and I've recently returned to my hometown of Dublin from Australia where now and again, I'll admit to missing the Australian sunshine, particularly at the moment. It's a very cold day. Right. Here. It's a cold and foggy day here in, in uh, Dublin. 
And in fact, we, we might uh, get our first uh, white Christmas in several years. Oh, wow. Um, yes, it's looking like that. Um, so um, I, uh, I write articles for leading technology websites, and I'm a regular and active contributor on LinkedIn. Um, I also strongly believe in uh, lifelong learning, and I've recently dis- uh, studied behavioral economics and received an, an honors degree in artificial intelligence and uh, I'm the co-author of uh, Humology, How to Put Humans Back at the Heart of Technology, along with my uh, partner in crime, Joanne Griffin. <laughs> well, Declan, thank you for that. Great experience for sure. And I am so excited to share out some of your, your wisdom uh, with our listeners today. So let's get started. But my first question is, what is Humology and what inspired you to write your book, as you'd mentioned, titled Humology, How to Put Humans Back at the Heart of Technology. And by the way, for our listeners, we will include a link to Declan's book in our show notes. But what inspired the book and and the name? Yeah, well, humology is the intersection of humanity and technology. So a few years back, while working in change management, I started to realize that it's not only in organizations where technology adoption and change fatigue um, were issues. But technology was a problem at a uh, society level as well. And I think, you know, we're all becoming increasingly aware of the dangers of uh, persuasive and extractive technologies. And you may have seen that that Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, was a fantastic documentary. And then there's there's work being carried out actually by the folks behind that uh, documentary, uh, the Center uh, for Humane Technology. So there's a global movement going on to ensure that technology doesn't get too far ahead of us and that it serves all of humanity uh, equally and fairly. So we're having discussions with my co-author initially around change management and digital adoption in general, and we both decided uh, that we had a passion for this subject and we needed to put our ideas and our passion into a framework and into a book. You know, we, we... both authors, we both love technology. You know, it offers incredible opportunities, but we can only avail of that uh, opportunity if we have the capacity to keep up with technology. And at the moment, you know, technology is outpacing us. Yeah. And, and Declan, in your book, you actually describe uh, that quote, we need to talk about the future. Technology is advancing faster than we can keep up with. We are no longer living at the speed of humanity. Technology dictates the pace while we battle to keep up, end quote. Declan, what are some of the negative consequences, would you say, that we are seeing with technology outpacing the way humans live, think, and work? Yeah, well, I think we see it every day. So, you know, there's some research out there that showed that every day we consume about uh, 74 gigabytes of information. Now, that's the equivalent of about 16 movies. So that's in the forms of uh, emails, Netflix movies or videos, WhatsApp messages, uh, YouTube and TikTok videos. And the research shows that that's about double the amount of information that we consumed uh, only 10 years ago. So all of this additional mental load is taking up precious space in our brain and taking up time as well. So, I mean, where do we end up getting the time? There's still only 24 hours in the day, but yet we're expecting our brains to consume 10 times the amount of information. And it seems as well that we're, although we're, we have all this information available to us and we're consuming it, we're only processing and we're only capable of processing a fraction of that, you know, and that then presents a problem. 
Yeah. And you also mentioned, uh, Declan, in your book that, uh, quote, we are approaching a tipping point. In order to build better technologies tomorrow, we have to start with new principles today. And so I, if you could share some of those principles with our listeners, that would be great. But also in your book, uh, Declan, you share how to build solutions that address real needs. So what do you mean by that exactly? And what would that look like? So, so maybe just kind of touch base on some of the principles as well as what that would look like to build solutions that better address the real needs. Yeah, I think that was one of the fundamental uh, things that we wanted to include in the book and that we found through our research. So one of my, my favorite quotes, and we included in the book, is from uh, T- Tony Ulwich's uh, book, Jobs to be Done, Theory to Practice, where he says, now, people don't want to buy a quarter-inch drill. They want a quarter-inch hole. Yes. <laughs> so it's this, you know, it's this idea of, um, and we want technologists, and I guess I'll explain that word technologist as well because we refer to it a lot in the book. I think, in effect, we're all technologists today because we're all impacted by technology. But I guess more specifically, the book is targeted at technologists who might be either developing products in a startup or in a larger organization or someone who's actually introducing or implementing technology into an organization. So that might be a project manager for an ERP solution or a change manager who's helping to implement a new HRIS system. So we're all technologists. and But too often, I think technologists are building tools that are like a, a hammer that's looking for a nail. You know, and that's fine. But the consequence of that is that the, all these tools that we encounter every day and in the workplace that are not addressing a real need, they end up being just noise and they add to our attention drain. So they add to our problem. In fact, the, the first step in the homology framework that we developed, or actually the second step, the first step is around purpose, knowing your purpose. The second step is to actually understand the problem. You know, our call to action is to get technologists to actually solve real problems and not just add to the noise. That's interesting. And, and by the way, I love that quote as well. Uh, people don't want to buy a quarter inch drill, they want a quarter inch hole. And, um, and I, I really thought that was pretty clever. And, and actually, we posted an article that I wrote called ERP, the quarter inch drill bit. So we'll include that link in our show notes. But what a great point. Uh, Declan, you also discuss in your book how to minimize disruption and increase adoption, that you need to design products that work in harmony with human psychology. And clearly, the use of technology today, right, and you think about social media and the various applications are heavily relying on you know principles of human psychology and the whole concept of cost per click and that sort of thing. Um, But what are your thoughts on that? Um, I I just like the statement that you made that we need to design products in a way that work in harmony with human psychology and not so much against us. Can you describe that some more? Yeah, of course. So we we do advocate for technologists, you know, to work in harmony with human psychology and not to take advantage of it. So one of the things that we really found interesting in our research, we looked to um, Miller's Law, which comes from uh, George Miller, who was one of the first psychologists to to study uh, mental processes. Mm -hmm. So Miller's Law states that the number of objects we can hold in our short-term memory is seven objects, uh, plus or minus two. And we we can see evidence of this in our daily lives. I mean, that's Miller's Law is why our phone numbers have seven digits and why our credit card numbers are broken up into chunks of four digits and why our PIN numbers are, are just, you know, four digits. It's essentially because we only have a certain amount of capacity 
In fact, it's really uh, our working memory acting as a gatekeeper you know, to the brain. And we like to say that it has a very selective door policy. Yeah. It only lets in a certain right. amount of information. Right. So when designing for humans, we really want to respect our natural and um, cognitive capacities to optimize for all types of and knowledge transfer. Yeah. So the quality of our learning experience can be increased when design takes into account the role and limitations of our working memory. So that's really important for technologists uh, to be aware of. Yeah, absolutely. And it's about the natural human cognitive abilities. And it's also about the, you know, I guess, maybe principles of human psychology. Because again, I think those ideas are sometimes leveraged in a negative way that overburden uh, our, you know, they're taken advantage of to overburden our cognitive abilities. And, and I yeah. think once you do that, then, you, you know, it's, it's going to have negative effects. You know, you, you also mentioned, uh, Declan, that when it comes to the future of technology and being more in tune with technology, if you're able to discover your purpose and you're grounded in ethics, that helps. I, I thought that was a really cool statement. Can you enlighten our listeners a little bit more on that idea? How, how is, as individuals, do you find that to be an effective technique for finding that balance between technology and, and I guess, the, the human uh, you know, the human experience. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So a great uh, inspiration for us in talking about discovering your, your purpose is the work that uh, Simon Sinek did, uh, and particularly in his golden circle uh, model. Yeah. And, you know, I love that quote from Simon Sinek where he, he says, you know, people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really important for you know, if you're building a new product to keep that in mind, or if you're implementing a new piece of technology, an ERP solution into an organization, you know, be really clear on why you're doing it. You know, and that golden circle model talks about the, the why, how, and the what, you know, with why at the center. And I've found that the golden circle model, particularly and specifically around ERP implementations, that when I talk to a project team, it's a great way to understand why we're doing and making sure we have a consistent message. Because I think a lot of organizations and a lot of projects are very capable of saying what we're delivering and how we're delivering it, but they forget about the why. Yeah. And that's really important. And part of what we cover in the book as well is to have a purpose statement. Again, for, it could be for a project or for a startup and a new product. Yeah. So the essence of that purpose statement is to ask why. So why are we in business? Why do we do what we do? Why this industry? Why are you, you using this technology? And so we urge people to think about purpose deeply and to dig into it as much as you can. And then I think we talk about ethics is really uh, important to, to both of us, uh, both authors. And we think it's also important for, if I talk about startups for a moment, because I think nowadays, you know, people want to work for and they want to do business with purpose-led organizations. And that's where, you know, a purpose statement is important and where ethics is important and where, you know, being authentic is important. So we've seen also in recent years the emergence of a stake, this idea of stakeholder capitalism and the move away from shareholder primacy. And that's where we can build, you know, long-term value for everyone, which is good for the bottom line for all of us. 
And isn't part of the problem, you know, as, as you'd mentioned in an earlier quote that I just read, is technology is advancing faster than we can keep up with it. But, you know, the title of your book is Humology, How to Put Humans Back at the Heart of Technology. But isn't part of the, the challenge here, uh, back to your why question, and for a lot of businesses, the, the answer to that why question is to make money. And so is, there's a disconnect there when you answer that question in that way, and then your, your humology it's not how to put humans back at the heart of technology, but it's how businesses leverage technology for their benefit. It, it just seems to me, you know, when you talk about ethics and principles and getting to the point where there's more of a balance between the experience of being human and technology, there's some people that see it differently, right? It's more of a technology as a money-making mechanism, and therefore they leverage the principles of human psychology and human nature to make money, which are certainly against you know, this idea of finding a balance. Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, we've seen that notion as well of, you may have read that fantastic book by uh, um, Shoshana Zuboff and the age of surveillance capitalism, yeah. which talked about this whole idea of just using technology, you know, as a means essentially to manipulate people yeah. by the use of technology. And I guess um, all, we're, all we're really trying to do in the book and I, and I think I've mentioned a couple of times is that it's a call to action to technologists. You know, we're, we're making a plea to people out there who work in technology to be wary of this. And we're also looking to be part of that uh, global conversation. You know, and I think I mentioned the likes of the Center for Humane Technology as well. Yeah. So I think it starts with making people aware and asking them to be considerate of the humans element of technology. And that's the start of the conversation. Not everybody will, will listen or take heed. Yeah, exactly. Well, let me ask you this, Declan. Are there any emerging technologies that concern you the most? Uh, or maybe let me flip that question. What are some of the emerging technologies that maybe excite you the most and why, especially when you look at this question in terms of um, you know, finding that balance between humans and technology? It's a, that's a great question. And um uh, I, I'm a big fan of, of artificial intelligence. And as I mentioned, I've recently studied that. Um, and I think the last couple of weeks uh, around LinkedIn and other social media and, and, and on the news, everyone's been talking about chat GPT. So um, I'll, I'll talk about that maybe for a moment. So GPT-3 and chat uh, GP, uh, GPT are from an organization called OpenAI and they're a generative artificial intelligence technology, you know, that generates a text. And that, and I guess that's the area that I find most exciting in, in recent weeks and months is this idea of generative AI, where AI can be used to generate text, uh, computer code, or even, you know, images and, and art. So if we take a look at the impact of artificial intelligence in the ERP or the project delivery space, so... Yet, if you're a project manager working on an ERP project or any other project, you can now, and increasingly so, you can now use artificial intelligence to predict if a project is on track or will be successful, or if a task will be delayed, or to classify risks and issues. And that's more you know, leveraging off the, the machine learning components of artificial intelligence. But if we look at the likes of GPT-3 and ChatGPT the, and their ability to generate text, we can see that, you know, at the moment or very shortly, project managers can actually use these technology to generate reports. So, you know, these status reports, you know, that are the bane of a project manager's life, 
you know, pretty soon we can maybe not automate them, but they can help us to generate those reports. Or they can also act as a reminder for, you know, some of the, the learnings that we've had. So you might say, for example, and I was playing with, with this during the week with ChatGPT, you might pose a question to that chatbot and say, can you remind me what should be included in a project brief document? Yeah. And the tool will actually come back and give you some suggestions, you know, based on the, uh, it's been trained on, you know, a lot of the, the, the information that's on the internet. Yeah. So it won't do this for you, but it'll be a great reminder. You might say, you know, I can't remember what's supposed to be in a business case. Maybe I'll ask the chat GPT to give me some bullet points or headings, and then I can flesh out the detail. So I find that very exciting technology. Yeah, that is pretty exciting. And that would actually be a, a fun topic on its own for, for an episode. Um, Probably, yes. <laughs> there's a lot there. And by the way, uh, Declan, you'd mentioned the, the Center for Humane Technology, and I'm a big fan of that organization and that website as well. And we'll include that in our show notes. I do uh, recommend that our listeners check that out and support that site as well. Yes, Jack, and I think now that we're talking about it, they also have a fantastic, um, I think it's, they call it their foundation course in humane technology, which is a fantastic yeah. free resource you yeah. know, for your reading. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, lots of great resources uh, for sure. Well, Declan, you talk about this idea of the capacity gap, and I'm going to quote you again, uh, quote, data, data everywhere, but not a minute to think, end quote. Um, <laughs> and that seems so true. And, and as you already referred to earlier in our conversation, you know, there's a lot of data out there and there's really more data than our cognitive abilities can process. But can you tell me more? How do we get around that issue? How do we manage that as maybe as individuals? How do we make the most out of taking advantage of this data, but doing it in a way that's of value? So I think at the moment that we're drinking uh, from a fire hose, and that's not really a sustainable way for humans uh, to consume what technology has to offer. So it's almost like we've created this digital fast food diet for our brain. And we've ended up with, and you may have heard this term, uh, infobesity. So just like convenience food makes it more effortable to be healthy, it's actually harder for us to consume that data out there in a healthy and sustainable way. So the increase in speed filtering and switching, you know, is crippling our flow state and it contributes to our mental exhaustion. So, I mean, we can talk about some of the things that actually sap our mental energy. It's the information and noise. It's constant distractions and uh, interruptions. It's too many choices, too many decisions, and it's learning and retooling. So we urge technologists to accept responsibility for their products and be mindful of the potential harms. So it could be, for example, an app that might remind us to take a break instead of presenting you know, the latest or a new video or post. And also don't make tools that are hard to adopt and I've certainly seen that a lot in my system implementation projects and ERP projects. You know, make your system easy to understand, easy to use, and easier for an organization to adopt. And I think that's ways to address that capacity gap. Yeah, I agree. I, I really like the idea that you'd mentioned that encourage technologists to accept responsibility, right? And, and I think to a yeah. certain degree, again, it comes down to ethics, right, frankly. Yeah. You also mentioned there, there's a lot of good material <laughs> in your book, and I, I want to share this, but a quote, how disruptive is your product? 
While the pace of change increases, our human capacity to change remains finite. Individuals overwhelmed by change shut out new ideas, including new products. And the reason I bring that up, Declan, is you talk about this idea. I'd love for you to at least provide a uh, a little bit of background on for our, our listeners, but you talk about the Beckard Harris change formula. Can you maybe just dig into that just for a moment and, and share what that is with our listeners? Oh, absolutely, and and it's it's actually one of our favorite tools, and that's why we we included it yeah. in the book. So the idea of this formula is that for any change to be successful, the dissatisfaction with the status quo, the desirability of the future state, and the practicality of the future state you know, must outweigh the cost of the change. So I've seen in my ERP implementations when I'm uh, engaging with stakeholders, and I have used this tool as well as a kind of simple way of gauging how big this change is to the organization. So I've seen that first element can be quite low, which is the desirability mm-hmm. of the future state. So you might say, um, how, how desirable is the future state? Sometimes people don't uh, the change management team or the project management team, they don't explain the what's in it for me for the future state. And so therefore, we have users who are quite content with their current system, and we haven't explained to them what's the benefits of moving to this new system. What's that desirability of the future state? Yeah. And therefore, we can see that that's quite low. Also, we can talk about something that is a really important factor, the dissatisfaction with the status quo. So you're trying to introduce a workday system, for example, and the, the people are currently using SAP, you know, and they're quite happy, thank you very much, with that current system. Yeah, so there's no right. dissatisfaction, you know, there's no incentive for them to move. Yeah. They have their reports that are coming out of that, the built that maybe customized reports, they have processes that are intertwined with that uh, legacy system. So your challenge then as a either a technologist building a new tool or as a project manager or a change manager is looking at those elements and saying, well, what is the change like? And and in fact, you can use it to evaluate the change because sometimes we look at a change that you're trying to introduce and you might have to be, you end up being honest with, you know, with your client or with this project sponsor and say, this is probably not the right time for this change or this change may not work, you know, because of one, one of those factors. It might be with the, the satisfaction with the status quo, the desirability of the future state, or even the practicality of the future state. So it might be, Another issue that's worthwhile considering the practicality of the future state. So maybe there's too much going on in the organization at this moment in time. Maybe they're suffering from change fatigue or change saturation. There's simply too many projects going on at the moment or have gone on the last six or 12 months. Now is not the right time to implement this particular solution. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe you're talking with a sponsor and they end up telling you they don't really have the budget, but they're going to try and force it through anyway. And you know that that's not practical. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You have to have a clear vision and alignment on what the end game is, right? What what exactly is the end game and what's the ultimate value for your end users? You know, at the end of the day, you could have the fanciest technology and, and software you can imagine, but if it doesn't bring ultimate value to the end users, you know, they're going to be less receptive. They are, yes. And, and they're going to push back. Yeah, absolutely. Declan, you talk about this idea that I thought was very interesting in your book as well, the five eyes. And uh, you'd mentioned that seeing humans through these five eyes provides rich insights for business and product design. Can you briefly share the idea and also what these five eyes are? Yeah, absolutely. So the five eyes is a concept that my co-author Joanne came up with, and it's a really nice way of thinking about how to be mindful of uh, human fallibilities and how do we summarize that for for technologists. So we, we expressed it under five eyes. 
So we know as humans that we're impressionable, we're impatient, we're inattentive, we suffer from inertia, and we're also inherently irrational. So if you like, I can dive down into some of those five eyes and explain some of them if you have the time. Please do. Yeah, maybe take a moment and just uh, drill into each one of those for our listeners. That's great. And so if we start with impressionable, so I think if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we're surprisingly easy to uh, influence. For example, if you're thinking about going on holiday, you probably just consult TripAdvisor. Or we've all seen where we're sitting down in front of the TV and, you know, Netflix suggests, or the Netflix algorithm suggests a new series for us to binge watch, you know, and we, we gladly take that advice. If we look at how impatient we are, you know, we, we simply prefer instant gratification. We only have to think about, you know, Amazon's one-click checkout experience and how easy that is to use. Yeah. Often technologies are designed to fire up that impulse system and to leverage off that and, in fact, sometimes take advantage of that. The next eye is uh, inattentive. So selling eyeballs to the highest bidder is now a successful business model. And we talked about uh, uh, Shoshana Zuboff's book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, earlier on. So we think that we can manage this by multitasking. But we found, and research shows, that when we multitask, we're not actually processing two things in parallel. We're actually switching rapidly between tasks. And there are some studies to show that we lose about 20% of our productive time you know, every time we switch between tasks. And we're prone to inertia. So this is simply quite simply the gap between our intentions and our actions. So we're all, you know, fully aware of that intention action gap. And we'll see coming up, I'm sure, this month as we get to New Year's Eve, we'll all maybe make the best intentions for New Year's resolutions. But how many of us actually follow through on, on all yeah. of them despite right. our best intentions, <laughs> you know? Um, the last eye is uh, irrational. So again, uh, Taylor and Sunstein talked about this idea of uh, – Econs in their seminal book, uh, Nudge, which is fantastic read. So it's where you know, traditional econ- economists assume that we're all rational agents and we think through the rationally the myriad of options that we have and we weigh up all the outcomes in order to make a decision. When in reality, we don't. And in reality, we sometimes say one thing and then do another. And we don't often make very rational decisions. So these five eyes, again, it's, it's going back to this idea of a call to, to action to technologists. It's we're hoping, you know, rather than taking advantage of these elements, we want people to be mindful of them when they're building their products. And we think that's a way for technology and products to be sustainable in the future. Yeah. Well, thanks for that, Declan. I, and I think that's really a powerful idea, right? And I think that when it comes to technology and making technology work for organizations or, or even individual people for that matter, you know, these ideas that you're talking about and you're sharing today, they can seem rather abstract in a way. And, and this idea of, you know, human, like as we've discussed previously, leveraging human psychology in different principles are quite powerful. And I think sometimes uh, because they're abstract and maybe sometimes a little bit invisible and maybe just not understood, I think that that's part of the the challenge, right? That's part of the problem with finding that balance between technology and in the human experience. Yeah. So what a great idea. Declan, you also talk about in your book that change is hard which is sometimes an understatement (laughs) or or a lot of times an understatement. But in part two, chapter four of your book, actually, 
you talk about this idea of what is traditional change management versus modern change management. I thought it was such a, a neat point. Can you describe the difference between those two and, and the value that you're trying to convey to your readers? Yeah. And, and as I mentioned earlier, I've been involved in change management um, probably for, I don't know, 15, 20 years now. And I've seen a lot of those changes in the projects that I'm, that I'm involved in. So I would say going back maybe even 10, 15 years ago with this idea of traditional change management, it tended to be more top down. So it's what the, the executive suite or the executive sponsor has determined is the change that determined the change that needs to be placed, that take place. It also focused on expecting and managing resistance. So that was a key thing, resistance management. And I guess it also relied heavily, mainly on comms and training. And that's not to say that there isn't a place for communications and training when you're implementing change in an organization, but it tended to rely quite heavily uh, on those two components. Declan, when it comes to changes as a result of technology, why does knowing your stakeholders matter? And I guess, can you share, and this is another idea you talk about in your book, but can you share the SCARF, the S-C-A-R-F model with our listeners? Yeah, I, in my experience of implementing change into organizations, particularly technology projects, I found that understanding your stakeholders gives you a real advantage and taking the time at the start of the project to map them out and to identify them really is a worthwhile uh, activity. And one of the things that I've started to use in recent years is this SCARF model, which was developed by uh, David Rock, and it helps us understand how we behave in social situations, and that includes the workplace. So the SCARF elements, they represent the five key domains that influence our behavior in these situations. So the SCARF is based on the idea that these domains trigger the same you know, fundamental threat and reward responses that we've always relied on as humans for our own physical survival. So the five elements are status, that's our importance in relation to others, certainty, our ability to predict the future, autonomy, it's our perception of control over events, relatedness, our sense of belonging and safety with others, fairness, which is our perception of how far exchanges between people are. So the idea here is when we're introducing a change is that we move towards reward and we move away from threat. So this is why we can have strong emotional responses in work situations and why it's not just a simple matter of switching those responses on or off because they're hardwired into yeah. our brains. Yeah. And we actually feel SCARF is very relevant for um, ERP and, and in general business-to-business -business technology products. Absolutely. Well, Declan, it's been a fun conversation here. And if you don't mind, I have two more questions for you that I'd like you to share with our listeners today. Um, and maybe the last two questions kind of pull the conversation today together. But you discuss in your book the idea of designing technologies with humans in mind. And you also discuss, for example, some of the topics that we discussed uh, on this uh, podcast today, which include designing for cognitive load, consciously unconscious, the role of habit, psychological approaches to change, behavioral science, behavioral economics. And I know we didn't touch on all these today, but I, I highly recommend our listeners uh, check out your book for more on those ideas. But in summary, why do you spend five chapters discussing these ideas? Why are they so important to you? I mean, at the end of the day, isn't technology just a set of features and functions that, you know, hopefully end users or humans can benefit from? Why do you focus so much on those non-technical ideas? It's a great uh, question, Jack. And I think 
we think that um, for too long that technology products have been designed and developed ignoring the impact on users. And that's what inspired us to write this book. And we've explained all of these concepts because we want technologists to understand them sufficiently so that they can then apply our framework, which is our umology framework, which we introduced in the, in the last section of our book. And briefly, we have six stages in our umology framework. And to understand them, you need to understand all these underlying concepts. So the, the six steps are know your purpose, understand the problem, consider the users, design the behaviors, deliver the change, and then take stock and reflect. So before we introduce that framework to our readers, we wanted them to understand the underlying principles. And that's why we've done that. Yeah, really well done too. Really well done. Such an important idea. All right, Declan, other than having our listeners buy and read your book, if you're going to give advice to organizations preparing for an ERP implementation, what gold nugget would you like to leave with our listeners? How can you take your experience and skill set and expertise and bundle that into a little nugget of advice for our listeners? What would you say? One of the, the, the pieces of advice that I always give to people who are about to undertake a project is to consider your stakeholders and your impacted users as early on as possible and talk to them and listen to them. And uh, you, you touched earlier on on the, uh, the SCARF model, and our Beckert and Harris change formula. So on our website, we actually have free tools that you can use and download for both the SCARF model and the change formula, which you can use for free. So I advise any of your listeners that they can log on to our, our website at www.humology.com and avail of some of the tools there. Well, Declan, thank you so much for your time. Uh, fun conversation, exciting topic, very interesting ideas and principles. And, you know, I think that with what we discussed today, you know, when you talk about your five eyes and you talk about the SCARF model, um, there's a lot you can do to really make those uh, tactical, right? I mean, so you can take these ideas and principles and models and actually make them tactical and useful in your project or your, you know, the development of products, I should say, or development of technology. So, yeah, I, I do encourage our uh, listeners to check out your website. And Declan, how can our listeners get a hold of you? Yeah, I think Jack is probably um, via the website is the easiest way. And that's uh, humology.com. Oh, super. And we'll have that in our show notes. Well, Declan, thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate your time, uh, a fun conversation, and uh, I really appreciate your work. Thank you, Jack. It's been really fun. You bet. Talk to you later. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of the ERP OCJ podcast. This podcast is intended as a forum to study, share, and discuss ERP organizational change successes and challenges. We discuss the people, process, and technological components of ERP organizational change by drawing on knowledge from extensive research, collaborative learning, and practitioner expertise and experience. We are incredibly grateful to have friends, colleagues, and mentors join us in our podcast as we seek to promote, connect, and foster relationships in the ERP organizational change community and contribute to its success by bringing research and practice closer together. We want to make sure this is the most useful and insightful ERP podcast you listen to, and we'd love your help in doing so by leaving us feedback and a review. A great place to do so is at Apple Podcasts. Just click on the Listen in Apple Podcasts link, then click 
ratings, and reviews, and let us know your thoughts. You can get more info about the show, including show notes and episode highlights for this and all of our episodes by visiting nestleandassociates.com and clicking the podcast option. Please join us again next week as we discuss the latest ERP organizational change research, practice, and stories. And don't forget to follow us on social media, hashtag the ERPOCJ. Thanks again for listening. Have a fantastic week.